Hello, my name is Elliot Maya, and I will be having a conversation with Amari for the New York City Trans Oral History Project, an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It is August 15th, and this is being recorded at Alex Salerno's home. Amari, can you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Amari, um, 19, uh, trans male uh, from the Bronx. Cool. So, Amari, General, um, how do you identify? What pronouns do you use? Yeah. Um, I identify as bigender, um, male and a poor gender, which means that basically you have a gender, but it's non-specified. Um, I was born here, born and raised here. Um, I use here they pronouns. Wonderful. So you were born here in New York City. Mm-hmm. In the Bronx. In Manhattan. In Manhattan. Yeah. Whereabouts in Manhattan were you born? Uh, I was born and raised on um, 125th, near between Lennox and 5th. Um, yeah. How long did you live there? Uh, until I was about 16. Okay. Where do you live now? I live in the Bronx. Bronx. Cool. So, growing up on 125th, can you tell me a little bit of what the neighborhood was like and what was it like with your family living there, et cetera? Um, it wasn't good, but it wasn't terrible. Um, definitely, probably, you know, a bit of gang activity. Um, it was it was about a step up from the projects. Um, before it started being gentrified, it was, you know, very dudes on the corner, sitting outside the stoop, uh, smoking weed outside, um, yeah. How would you describe your race or your ethnicity? Uh, black. Black. Black American or just black? Black. Black. So, you talked about your, the block that you grew up on, and how you, you, you called it like a step up from the projects, right? Yeah. What is one of your earliest memories from growing up on the block? Um, I guess probably the first time I realized that the area that I lived on wasn't so good was the first time a guy got shot outside my apartment. Mm. Um, I was home alone, and, you know, I'm doing my schoolwork, and all of a sudden I hear this out, bang, and I'm like... <laughs> what in the world is this? So I look outside my window and there is some dude laying literally on the floor, on the ground in front of my apartment, just dead. And all of a sudden everybody starts crowding around and I was just like, where the hell do I live? Like I thought I knew, but I guess I don't. Yeah. So. Yeah. That, how old were you? Uh, maybe about 12, 13. 12, 13. And do you remember anything else about that instance? Like, did you go outside? Did you join the crowd? Um, I just remember watching from my window. Um, I was just really scared of the cops. Mm. And I didn't want them asking questions. And I remember I called my biological mother and told her that somebody got shot. And she was like, if the police knock, don't answer the door. Wait till I come home. And I was like, why? She was like, just don't answer the door. And sure enough, after she got home, two white police officers came up to our door, and I was scared 
as all hell. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. I was like, are they going to shoot us? Like, it was a wreck. So the threat of the police, in a sense, eclipsed the threat or, or the perceived threat or the very mortal fear of seeing a dead body like on your stoop essentially yeah because i mean i'm into like a lot of weird stuff so like seeing a dead body was more of like a cooler experience mm. but i think that was the first time i ever really felt scared was when the cops came and knocked on the door do you re- remember how young were you when you first kind of realized that the cops were something that or were a force that you were afraid of probably around that That's time I, I always knew that they made me uncomfortable. You know, they always looked at me some kind of way. And, you know, I'm 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 the type of person where, you know, I tend to stare just because that's my way of, like, seeing things. And the cops would just always stare me down. It always made me extremely uncomfortable. I never knew why. And it was usually the white cops, mm. <clears throat> the white male cops who always felt the need to just have a stare down with me. And I never understood why. You know, I was just like, I'm uncomfortable. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. My next question is, I, I want, I do want to go back to that that idea. That's a very like strong like opening a memory to have of like your block. I think we should definitely dissect that a little bit if you're comfortable. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering if I could hear more about your house. Like, what did your house look like? My house was tiny. Um, We lived in a little four-floor apartment complex. Um, It was very small. It was pretty much about not many square footage. It was two bedrooms um, up until I was about 10 or so. I shared uh, a bedroom with my half-brother, and then after that, my biological mother gave him his own room Mm. and forced me to sleep with her Mm. until I turned about 14. And then, um, I think around that age, yeah, and then she gave me his room Mm. and he went wherever. So, you said you you didn't enjoy living there. No. Did you have, like, a good relationship with your siblings and your biological mother? Absolutely not. Oh, man, no. No. I mean, because she she wasn't equipped, necessarily, to be a fit mother. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she she had a lot of issues going on at the time that, you know, me being older now, my dad has explained somewhat to me. Um, But she just wasn't equipped to handle trying to raise kids Mm. and it's not necessarily her fault Mm. but she just wasn't not every not every parent deserves children Mm. but every child deserves a parent Mm. and I was just one of the kids that just so happened to you know have a have a parent who didn't really realize the impact that they had Mm. on them um and my half-brother he and I were you know, friendly up until about I turned nine or mm-hmm. so. After that, I just knew he really irritated me. Mm. 
for right. whatever reason. Did he do certain things? He he just didn't really seem to care about my well-being. Mm. He would bring around friends who, you know, looked at me kind of suspiciously mm. and never really said anything about it. I remember one time I was walking up the steps. I think I was about 12, maybe. And one of his friends was like, yo, you're, at the time, you know, your mm. little sister's cute. Mm. And it made me really uncomfortable, and he just really didn't say anything about it. And I was like, I see how you see me now. Mm. Okay, great. Like, I'm just some sort of person taking up space, you know, so. Is that how your house felt sometimes? Did you feel like this is a place where you're taking up space, but did you really live there? Oh, I just kind of felt like I was a person who was literally taking in space like I was just a burden to everyone mm. like I'm just here can you hurry up and get the hell out yeah you know um did you have ways of combating that feeling like did you do things that you like to do did you leave the house did you explore the neighborhood um well I was a pretty chill kid I really didn't do much because I didn't really get along with the kids on my block and I think it must I think it was because I realized from a young age I was a lot more intellectual than the kids that I went to school with and I didn't really mesh with a lot of people because I had such different interests like I went to um I didn't start going to like PWIs until I hit like middle school and high school what's PWI uh primarily white institutions okay um but my elementary school was a lot of black and um latinx kids Mm -hmm. And, um, I didn't really fit in. Like, they always told me, you act too white or you speak too white or things like that. And I tried to, like, sort of blend in, but it just really didn't work because I love to read and I didn't really like to go outside during recess. I like to stay inside and read books in the AC mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, things like that. Like, I like I liked doing extra work. And, you know, whenever we would have reading tests, that was always, like ways ahead of the other kids and you know my teachers would ask me to tutor other kids I I never said yes because I knew the kids didn't like me Mm -hmm. and I figured out later on that it was you know just because I was a little different Mm. and you know kids can be cruel Mm. so so when you I want to talk about how you felt in both institutions but we can start with the um, you started at a PWIs right I started a PWI in about the sixth grade. Okay. But before that, were you at a primarily black school? Yeah. So what was that like in elementary school? And like, what were your experiences there? Uh, I got bullied a lot. Okay. It was really a lot of the same commentary of you act too white. You mm. th- There were literally two white kids in my class. Okay. Two white girls, and I was friends with the, both of them. And we liked to read books, and we would just, you know, chill out and talk and... I didn't really think there was anything wrong with that. You know, I just saw them as my friends. I wasn't really like, oh, these are my white friends. But everyone around me made the distinction, and I wasn't really sure why until I, you know, I got older and I realized mm-hmm. that there is a distinction. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but there is a distinction. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not like them. Mm-hmm. They're not like me. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know... They as in your white friends. They, yeah. Okay. And growing up, 
my biological mother had very mixed messages about race. Mm. She was like, she she sent me, she wanted to send me to PWIs because they had better opportunities. And she wasn't really trying to educate me about my blackness. Mm. But at the same time, she would tell me, you're black and you need to know that because these people are not going to treat you like everyone else. So I was just very, I wasn't really sure what she was trying to get across to me. Mm. All I just knew was that I inherently wasn't as good as everyone else. And I had to try and sort of, like, get around that. And I remember she told me, and this will stick with me for forever, she told me that you have to be twice as good to be half as good. Mm. And I didn't really know what that meant until I started going to PWIs, and I was like... Yeah, I see what she was saying. Like, I'm so different from all these other kids. But she would always send me there because they had better resources and 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 things like that. Because she knew that like sort of the quote unquote inner city schools didn't have a lot of opportunities for growth because they didn't really put a lot of money into those schools because there were so many minorities, you know. And it's like inherently, inherently you know, being a minority means you don't get the same resources as everyone else because you just, you don't need them. Because you're just going to turn out to be a drug dealer or a gang member anyway. When did you first become racially conscious? Like, not even a conscious, that's the wrong word, but aware that you were black, you are black, and there are people that are not. In the sixth grade, when I first started going to my middle school, um, there was a girl who like bullied me relentlessly for like, two, three years, and I remember she was making fun of the way I spoke, mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure why. I was like, I go to this school, same as you, like it. It didn't make any sense to me, and I remember one day, you know, she called me ghetto, and I was like, I, I'm not. <laughs> Like, what? And it it confused me because in what my biological mother had taught me was, you know, ghetto was, you know, the loud-talking black kids, the black kids who cursed too much, you know, the, the black kids who were running around, you know, doing whatever at all types of night. So I was confused, and that's kind of when I realized that no matter how you speak or, you know, what you look like, Lots of times white people are just going to see you as less than just because of your skin. Mm-hmm. And you said that your your mother, your biological mother, didn't give you mixed messages. And so your idea of, like you knew that in white environments, there was this idea of like you not measuring up enough. Um, but then in black environments, there is still this level of, from what you said, it seems like you still got bullied, and there's a level of, like, that difference still existed, that, mm-hmm. and you knew that the difference was, like, eventually, in white environments, that, like, they considered you to be something that wasn't white. But then in black environments, where, like, in elementary school, or, and I think beyond, where you were encountered bullying, how did you wrap your mind around that? Like, what did you? How did you understand? Like, why am I still being bullied? I, 
I didn't know how to Mm -hmm. because it was like I just knew I didn't fit in anywhere Mm -hmm. because it was like I was too white for the black kids and too black for the white kids so where the hell do I fit in because you know it's like I'm black but I'm not like that kind of black yeah whatever that kind of black was it was like my 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 mother made these distinctions like you're not like these black kids mm-hmm. but the white kids made the distinction of you're not like the white kids yeah so i was just i was like i was confused and and, and i was like i sort of had like a race crisis mm-hmm. almost because i was like well maybe i'm mixed maybe mm-hmm. Like, there has to be something else in there because there's no way in the world I can just not fit in anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I remember in the sixth grade, we did sort of like a family tree thing. And I found out I am nothing but black. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to my great, 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 great grandfather, mm-hmm. who actually was white and he was a slave owner. Mm-hmm. And so apparently, I believe the, the family story is mm-hmm. that he raped one of his slaves Mm -hmm. and the rest of us came from that Mm -hmm. and I was like well I'm just black like there's nothing else in there so Mm -hmm. what is the problem and and for a while I was just kind of confused because I just didn't really understand why I didn't fit in anywhere but I realized that it's because you know sort of like the sort of like the inherent Mm self-hate that goes on in the black community like just because I sound like I read books doesn't make me white Mm -hmm. because black people read too and we do everything that they do the only difference is the skin color Mm -hmm. And, and I feel like I feel like these being in sort of like the inner city schools like they didn't they sort of capitalized on the Mm self-hate by sort of separating lots of the the poorer minorities Mm -hmm. via bad schools Mm -hmm. no resources things like that so it sort of reinforces the idea of we're not good enough and so you know you have kids dropping out of schools because the teachers don't know how to teach and they don't want to teach, you know. Like it's it's like rare that you find teachers who are um, dedicated to wanting to better the lives of the kids that go to inner city schools. And like looking back on it, I was like, that's a lot of self hate that I experienced. And luckily for me, I managed to sort of not internalize so much of it because I still had a lot of issues growing up. I was like, well, I guess I'm supposed to be the white kids but the white kids didn't get me so it was like well everyone tells me I act so white and like you know I like a certain kind of music and you know I do a lot of things that black people just don't do Mm -hmm. and I sort of had to debunk those things for myself and realize that I'm okay in my blackness no matter what type of music I listen to no matter what I wear no matter who I'm interested in things like that So, you talked about, um, 
this the idea of self-hate and how I agree with you I think it's incredibly prevalent in black and brown communities especially like a lot of black communities um, and in the children in you're growing up and if you are identified or, or something as like not black enough or even if you the, the day you realize that you're black you have a moment where you're like but do I want to be that like, I don't need to choose because that comes with a lot of baggage mm -hmm. and so my curiosity is when you realize that yeah I'm black I ain't nothing but black and there are these people making value judgments on you in every which way based on how they decide to perceive your blackness for that day. Do you remember how young you understood and dealt with like the manifestation of self-hate, um, of, of like anti-blackness in your body? Like how did that manifest for you? Um, I definitely tried to fit in with the black kids. Mm -hmm. And I say black kids. No. Yeah. Um, before I started going to PWIs, I definitely tried to fit in with them i started trying to use the slang i started trying to you know and and i and it was crazy because you know and they look at me like you're just trying too hard mm -hmm. and i'm like but this is how you want me to be like mm -hmm. this is the only way i'm gonna fit in with you guys and so i remember when i came home one day and i guess i was using a little too much mm -hmm. slang my mother asked she was like what's wrong with you what do you Mm -hmm. We don't speak. We don't speak like that. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I was like, "Who is we?" Because this is how they want me to be. This is how the black kids in my school want me to be. I have no choice but to be like this because it's the only way I'm going to be accepted in my blackness. Mm -hmm. And she was like, "You're gonna speak like you've read a book," and that was like the only time she didn't equate me being black with like how white people saw me, mm -hmm. she just said, act like you've read a book. And I was like, huh. Okay. So that's what I've been doing. I've been acting like I have some sense in my head, mm -hmm. somewhat, and not acting like I'm white. Okay. And that was like a revelation for me because that was the first time anybody had said anything to me that didn't equate to some sort of animosity between races. It was just act like you read a book. Sound like you read the dictionary for fun. <laughs> so that was a big moment for you. Yeah, it was. Like, I... Because it, for once, it helped me feel like I'm not a failure to the black race. I just... Some people don't read books. I like to read books. And that doesn't make me white. It just means I like to read books. So, do you remember any conversations that you've, you've, you've hinted at some of the dynamic relationship with your biological mother? And if you're comfortable, I'd like to talk about that. If, if you don't want to, let me know. Um, and so can you tell me more about those dynamics or like can you remember a, a specific conversation that you had with your biological mother that really like left like a mark or like impacted you for a long time positively or negatively um well the relationship between us she was a very closed off person mm -hmm. um 
she did a lot of things on the low that she didn't think I knew about, but I was an observant kid. Mm -hmm. Um, I recognized that something was a little off because, you know, kids would talk about, you know, my mom did this for me or my mom did that for me. And I never really had that. My mother, she didn't go on school trips. I had to, like, beg her to come to when I remember. I had to, like, beg her. I was like, please, please, please. She's like, I have to work. You know I can't do this. I'm like, please, mom. Mm -hmm. Please just come to the school trip just one time, and I'll never ask you again. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you know what, fine, I'll go. So, you know, she took me to school, and, you know, of course, every kid is like, oh, my gosh, like, Graham with my friends, like, Mm -hmm. leave me alone. And I just told her, I was like, don't embarrass me. Because, you know, she liked to call me all sorts of names in the house, and I'm like, that's fine in the house. I was like, mom, please just don't embarrass me, like... That's it. She was like, all right, all right, I'm not going to embarrass you, you know. I'm like, all right, great. So, you know, I went to school, and she came with me. And it was a weird experience, because I hadn't been around her for that long. Mm -hmm. In, like, a a setting. Like, in general, I was with her for the whole day. Excuse me. But, like, I didn't really want her around me. I just wanted her doing the things that parents do. But it didn't feel like us. It felt fake. You know, like, and, you know, I thought I would be excited, but in essence, I just, I wanted her doing the things that other parents do, and she wasn't doing that. And that's kind of when I realized, like, okay, she's not like the other moms, and she, that's just not her, she's not going to be that, so, like, I'm going to stop forcing her to, because that's what it felt like, essentially, like, I was forcing her to be something that she wasn't, she was the type of mom that you know cooked dinner and before dinner she was in her room with the door locked Mm. after dinner she was in the room with her door locked the only time we really spent any time together was when we were eating Mm. and even then we were watching tv so there's not really any sort of communication happening so i mean that was basically Mm. the the dynamic of our relationship i was pretty much on my own and i kind of had to fend for myself because anytime, for instance, like, you know, kids ask their parents for help with their homework all the time. And her answer was, well, why don't you know this? That's what you're in school for. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, just gonna struggle through this on my own. That's fine. And, but, you know, then I started trying to call my dad to ask for help because they were divorced by this time. And he helped me. And so, you know... She she realized this, and so anytime I needed help, Mom, I need help with my homework, call your father. Hmm. Great. So that sort of strengthened my father and I's relationship and sort of began to diminish the already sort of wrecked dynamic hmm. between my biological mother and I. What did your mother do? If I can ask. What did she do? <laughs> I swear, the only thing she didn't do was hit me. And I kind of wish, sometimes I wish that it had been that rather than sort of the sort of leftover psychological effects of, you know, borderline verbal abuse. Mm -hmm. She wasn't the fun parent. She was the very strict, you know, and again, there are, you know, there's, there are parents like that. And my friend, um, had a dad like that. He was, you know, all about making sure his kids were knew what they were doing and things like that, but he was present in their life. Mm. And 
my mother, even when she was at home, she wasn't there for me. And so, you know, that coupled with a lot of, because I had weight problems when I was younger. And so that coupled with a lot of, why don't you do this? Why are you so fat? Why can't you get your grades up? Why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? It was just a lot of that. And it messed me up because I was like, well, you know, it sort of it sort of made me feel like I was a burden to her and she didn't love me and things like that. And my best friend, who was like sort of the ideal, excuse me, sort of the ideal daughter, placed up against me. And from a very young age, I always knew that I wasn't straight or sort of cis. I knew I identified more with the boys than the girls. I knew I liked girls. But I wasn't sure what it was because there was no exploration of that in my house. I just knew I was different. So, you know, sort of being put up and somewhat pitted against my best friend was, like, psychologically hurtful to me. And I didn't realize it until later on down the line. Um, You know, it was a lot of, aren't y'all in the same class? Why can't you get help? Why can't you have her help you? And I'm like, because she doesn't know what she's doing either. Like, the only person helping her is her father. So she was like, well, I'm going to send you over there for tutoring because you obviously don't know what you're doing. Why don't you ask for help? And I'm like, because you can't help me. I'm doing physics in the ninth grade. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like, what? No one knew what they were doing. I mean, excuse me, physics in the sixth grade. Um... No, I lied, the ninth grade. I was right. Um, you know, so it's like, it was it was tumultuous, but all internally, I learned to just keep things to myself from her, because that's what she did. She always acted like everything was okay when people would ask her, oh, how's so-and-so? Oh, you know, everyone's great. Everyone's fine, but it wasn't. And so from from that moment, I, I sort of internalized the whole lying to people and telling them that everything is fine when it's not. And then you deal with your own problems at home. You know, behind closed doors. You do whatever you have to to function. And she was a functioning alcoholic. And so she, when she would, you know, she thought I didn't know, but I knew. She would drink and, you know, she'd smoke cigarettes in her room. And every time she'd come out and just Febreze. And, I, you know, when I was younger, I was like, what the heck is she doing? I was like, she just wanted to smell nice. Okay, you know, maybe I'll start for breathing in my room. Like, you know. But then I got older, and I remember one time I caught her smoking in the in the bathroom. And, you know, I would go in there sometimes, and I'm like, Mom, it smells like cigarette smoke in here. She's like, oh, that's just, you know, the people downstairs. And I'm like, okay. Until one day she was on the phone, and I knocked on the door. And sure enough, she opened the phone, she opened the door with a phone on her shoulder and a cigarette in one hand and she was like what do you want and I was like I just wanted to show you this thing that I made and she was like I'll look at it later okay bye I was like alrighty then that's okay I see how this is and I was like so that's what you've been doing all this time <laughs> so that's kind of when I realized that I was more alone than I actually thought I was I didn't really have anybody except my father who I saw on weekends so like two and a half days a week out of seven I saw him so the sense of aloneness it seems that home life and possibly 
um, school life fostered her. How did you come to understand or at least accept and, and recognize that you weren't straight and that you weren't cis? Well, I mean, most definitely, I was very proud of myself when it came to that. I was very open about it. You know, I remember my my first crush with my second grade teacher. Like, you know, I, I always knew. And I remember there was this girl, um, and I was, I was never ashamed of it. Um, but I remember the first time that I ever felt ashamed of being, you know, quote-unquote different was one time when um, this girl, who I thought was my friend at the time, her name was Kia, <laughs> Um, I told her, I was like, yeah, I have something to tell you. And she was like, yeah, what's up? I'm like, and I was like, I like girls. And she was like, what? Ew, oh my God, that's so gross. And I was like, it's not. Like, you know, it's just like, like, you know, I just like girls. Like, the way boys like girls. Like, you know, this, not really anything wrong with that. And she was like, okay. So I thought everything was good. She told everyone in the class. And that was the first time that I'd ever felt ashamed about who I was. Because when she told everybody in the class, everyone started making fun of me. The girls didn't want to talk to me or anything like that because they're like, oh, you like me. And I was like, honestly, like, my type is pretty. So you have nothing to worry about? (laughs) Like, so I just sort of had to develop this thicker skin about me being who I was because I sort of had no one else to teach me how to do that. I just had to sort of do it for myself. So it was like trial and error, you know, just figure out what works and what doesn't. So, Do you think that with this having happened that that's affected your idea of what community can mean and look like? Oh, yeah. As an adult? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like, for me, my wanting community is sort of unconditional love. No matter what, like, no matter what I tell you, you'll still love me. Whether or not you agree, you'll still love me and respect me. And I can talk to you about these things, whatever they may be. So, you know, if it's if, if I'm having girlfriend troubles or boyfriend troubles or significant other troubles, and you might not agree, but you'll sit there and you'll listen to me. And you'll love me regardless. You know, and that's that's sort of what community feels like to me. And I never really had that until I got older. And, you know, even now, like, I'm just recently finding people who accept me for who I am. Because, like, you know, in a sense, I, you know, I always felt like everyone has conditions until I sort of met the group of people that I hang out with now and they're like there's no conditions like they're you know they seem to be like you know always gonna be here for me no matter what and it's a refreshing feeling but it was also extremely strange and sort of foreign people are you know my friends are always like yeah you know I'm always gonna be here for you and I'm just like lol jk you wild what you doing though like you know because I, I I just because no one was no one ever said that to me you know I've, I've never heard those words before so any person you know who kind of said that to me I really didn't believe 
So, you know, it was the sense of community that I feel now is definitely something that um that I'm not used to, but I embrace wholeheartedly because it's it's nice to have people who love you. Mhm. You know. What are some positive experiences you've had related to this idea of community? Um, definitely the friends that I've met now. Um, like, it's, it's nice to have people to hang out with, you know, and, like, people who are supportive of me. For instance, like, um, Nat, uh, friend, Nat Nat Cabrera, a friend of mine, um, he, he wants to, he's sort of, like, embarking on this mission to become sort of trans famous and you know he I remember he he took uh photos of me and for his trans Instagram blog and I was like wow like this is what it feels like to have people who em- who embrace who you are you know and it's like you know a lot of people can say oh yeah that's cool you're trans but there's not really a lot of embracing that part and so that was the first time I really felt like parts of my identity were being accepted, like fully accepted by people who were just like me. And it was it was a very validating experience because, you know, like I, and I do I do a lot of that for myself in terms of being very open about my transness and my queerness, but it's nice when other people can affirm that for you. And that's what I hadn't experienced until recently. Do you think that part of community is playing the role of, of like an affirmative energy? Absolutely. I mean, it's sort of like we become sort of like other people become the things that you need. Mm. For instance, like I never had a mother figure and I got that from other people. You know, people who actually cared about my health and my well-being and I wasn't used to that. I was just like, yeah, okay, whatever, you're just being naggy, like, stop. But in reality, it was people caring about me. And I had never really had that. And I feel like that's what friendship and, and relationships in general are about, are people who help you look out for yourself. You know? Mm-hmm. And that was something I hadn't experienced, so it was like a foreign concept to me. But... That's my idea of community, are people who help you help yourself and, and are there for you when you need them. And so if you if you tell someone, it's like, yeah, man, I need some validation right now, that person has you. You are the greatest person in the world. Even if you don't think that, you are so popping, you have a great sense of style, you have great this, great that, you know, I'm so glad that you're my friend. Those are the type of people that you need in your life. And that's what community is about. Are, are people who will help you even if you can't help yourself. You know? I like that. What are some negative experiences you've had related to community, if there are any? Depending too much on people. Definitely. That becomes a large problem for me. Um, mostly, Mostly because of the various mental illnesses that I have um I can sort of 
rely a little too heavily on validation from people. And as great as that is, that can't just be all that. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Like, that can't be all I depend on. Mm. And sometimes it can be that where if a person is, if a person that, you know, I know is upset with me, it's the end of the world. Because all of that, all of that, that previous validation is now gone because this person is upset with me. When in actuality, people are allowed to be upset and people have feelings. And just because that person is upset doesn't mean that they don't love you. You know, and so, <clears throat> like, I have a lot of issues with that, and, you know, I'm still trying to work through those things with therapy and things like that, um, but those tend to be some of the, the the negative things, like, when you have people speaking so fondly of you all the time, when it seems like they're not doing that anymore, it's kind of like a shock to my system. Can you describe the community or communities that you're a part of now? Uh, black Tumblr community, uh, the trans community, trans masculine community, um, queer community, LGBTQ community in general. Um, in yeah. general, in the whole world? Yep. Or like the Callum Lord? Or... <laughs> um, Callum Lord. Yeah, Callum Lord has sort of like created our own sort of community um outside of that like we uh a bunch of my friends like we have this group chat going on and so that's sort of our little community and so the more people we add to that the bigger our community gets um so you know but also I guess separately the trans masculine community at the Callum Lord Center would also be you know somewhat different because we talk about different things and, you know, some people are there sometimes, some people are there other times. Um, so, you know, I, I see those as somewhat vaguely different. Um, yeah. So, sorry, that's a little less of an, um, of an organic shift. I'm just kind of moving around and seeing what, what sparked the conversation. So... In our glorious year of 2016, and I'm going to say the last five years, we've seen a marked increase in not just LGBT or LGBTQ visibility, but like specifically, we've seen a, a large like upshoot in trans visibility. Although specifically, a lot of that is MTF. So, my question is, how do you see yourself in this like epic? of like increased queerness and increased trans visibility well for me it's more of supporting other people to help them get to the state where I'm at where I'm I guess like overly comfortable with myself in the sense of like I'll tell a random person on stream like yeah I'm trans how are you like what does it have to do with anything? Absolutely nothing, but I'm proud of myself and who I am. So I'm just going to let you know that. And so I feel like for me, sort of 
my role in a sense is to help other people get comfortable with themselves like that because not a lot of people are and you know it's it's one thing to have people who validate and affirm affirm you know you and give you self-confidence but it's another thing to have people literally help you embrace who you are for yourself and I feel like that's sort of like my role in this and like it's been making me so happy to see the trans visibility that has sort of increased, especially on Tumblr, because I'm very much a Tumblr person. I don't really do a lot of social media, just because I feel like a lot of it can be somewhat fake, in the sense of, like, you know, people will re- re- reblog or repost things on Facebook, but they don't really care about the issues. Um, but... Yeah, I like the um the visibility itself makes me happy. Although, you know, and there are, there are always going to be issues with things. Like there's really not a lot of tra- for instance, trans feminine visibility unless it's this trans woman got killed today mm-hmm. or this trans woman got kidnapped. And it's like we need more positive things. Meanwhile, and at the same time, also, that goes for the, the male t- uh, female-to-male mm-hmm. community as well because lots of times all you'll really see are these really buff guys who you can't really tell, you know, quote-unquote can't really tell. And not everyone is like that. And that's also something I had to learn from myself, that literally not everybody wants to be buff and ripped and get top surgery and and sort of put on this sort of facade of being a cis male and that was something I I didn't know I assumed that everyone wanted to be like that and I assumed that somehow being on testosterone and doing all these things were going to do that for you but they don't that's something you have to work out for yourself and being in this community has sort of helped me also sort of debunk the the things that I've been conditioned to think you know that like now I know you know it's like it's okay for men to cry any sort of man at all and that, you know, not every trans person wants to transition. And, you know, not every trans man wants to be super buff and masculine. Some of them want to wear dresses, and that's totally okay. You know, it's like there there's so many different ways to be trans. And that's something not a lot of people speak on. They just, they just sort of pocket it as this one breed of the trans man mm-hmm. or this one breed of this super feminine dress wearing trans woman mm-hmm. do you feel like we have like a very limited number of trans individuals in spots of mostly positive visibility like I want to say like I forget her last name, but Carmen Carrera, Carrera, um, Laverne Cox. Uh, I actually don't even know of any like famous, famous trans men uh, besides the 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 athlete in the Olympics right now on the men's team. I think the U.S. men's team. Um, and my curiosity is in the way that like black Tumblr and black social spaces are beginning to ask more of black celebrities saying it's not enough for you to 
pocket off of our money and then walk away when we're dying mm-hmm. and then like make an album about something like vaguely referencing that community to, right. speak, like, to speak while we're still here and speak us into remembrance do you hold the same accountability to trans celebrities and just people with more of a voice or do you see that as more of it's already much more contentious to be a trans body in a public space and like for safety reasons do you see a lot of their silences as like permissible I feel like that's such a complicated question because I completely understand the the silence of some trans people in terms of a safety issue because lots of times there are spaces that people are in where they're not capable of being out Mm-hmm. And they're not capable of being themselves. And that I understand, you know. So it's like not every trans person is able to reblog that post on, you know, so-and-so or or be out and and be sort of advocates for themselves and other people. Um, but at the same time, I feel like if you are in a position to be able to do that, why not do that? Why not rep your people? You know, why not speak on these issues if you have the power to and if you are capable of doing so? Like, for instance, Laverne Cox is a great example of someone who is in, you know, the the, the celebrity spotlight and does so much trying to speak and trying to be this trans activist that it's so refreshing to see people like that. Or for instance, like Janet Mock Mm -hmm. is very much, you know, a trans activist. And we need more people like that. But at the same time, I feel like that sort of representation is not really there for trans men Mm -hmm. because a lot of trans men choose to fly under the radar Mm -hmm. and just live their lives. And not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but we need more men like us trying to help men like us. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you have these trans women speaking on... They can only do so much to speak on trans male issues because that's not the lives that they lead. So they can only do so much. And I feel like just like you have women like Laverne Cox and Carmen Carrera and Janet Mock speaking on trans feminine things, we need more trans men speaking on these issues. But they sort of... I'm I'm not going to say choose the easier life, quote unquote, but it's just a question of where my people at, where's our representation. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for the trans feminine community because it's so problematic, you know, lots of times the way people in general, including trans people, treat trans women. But sometimes it's like, where's our representation? You know, just like black people want to be represented, just like just like um, Latinx people want to be represented, trans men want to be represented too. And I feel like that representation really isn't that thorough or that pronounced. Mm. 